Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-388. This is Chris, your host for today. Yak farmer, zombie hunter, you know me. Amateur consumer of history. And with that, 388. 388, that's an odd number. In the year 388, by the Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar, but not the Chinese calendar. That's There's, there's like 230 different calendars, you know. Anyhow, in 388, Theodosius I consolidated power over the Western Roman Empire by beating up and uh, doing away with Magnus Maximus. Now, Magnus Maximus is a kick-ass name. Magnus Maximus, he was from Britannia and usurped power in one of the uh, messy transitions that went on as the empire was starting to fall apart in the late 4th century. So, it had a this battle had a larger impact on on all of us a century or so later because when he left Britain to go fight Theodosius, Magnus Maximus took all the available soldiers with him out of Britain, which left Britain pretty much unprotected. You see when the Romans went into a place like Britain, they assimilated a, a region. They said, "Hey, you don't need forts or weapons. We're here to protect you now. I should do that with a Sicilian accent, shouldn't I? We're here to protect you. Standard operating procedure was to keep the rebellions down by not letting them have fortifications or weapons. So when the Romans pulled out, those pesky Scots and Irish started raiding, and the Romanized Britain, they had nothing to protect themselves with, like a hundred years later. So one of those guys came up with this really bright idea of hiring in some Anglo-Saxons from the continent as mercenaries to deal with the invading Scots and Irish. And we know how that ended up working out, don't we? And that's why when you refer to England now, you're calling them all Anglo-Saxons now. Anyhow, 388. Yeah. Today we talk with Mike, who runs... See what I did there? Mike's Running School. We talk about mechanics and form, and we geek out a little bit on about how to teach people running. 
And I'm also going to talk about my ultra training until you get sick of it or I drop dead. I'm learning a lot. It's interesting. And I will also do a bunch of product reviews around all the new stuff that I'm trying out and people have given me in the last couple months. It is the summer solstice and the days are long up here. Not too hot yet, but long. I got my garden in. I've been having a pitched battle of my own with the various critters and varmints and insects, but it will all be worth it if I can have that one perfect warm tomato on a bed of fresh basil. And it's also baseball season. I've got a baseball problem that I need your help with. Let me give you some exposition. My wife was cleaning this week and tried to throw out that old baseball bat that I have had forever. Now, I found this bat when I was cleaning out an old house that my dad bought 30 or 40 years ago. And it has been kicking around all these years somehow in my life, and I still have it. So I went ahead and looked it up on the internet because it's an old bat. And it turns out it is a Spalding Boy's Wagon Tongue Bat from somewhere around the 1880s. So yeah, I have a 140-year-old old, old, old bat, and I don't particularly want it, but I would like it to go to a good home. I don't want to throw it away. So this is where you come in. Does anyone know or want or need a 140-year-old boy's baseball bat on... With the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Ultra training update. Let me bring you up to speed on my ultra training, my 100-mile training. I'm training for my first 100-mile race at the end of July. I finished a couple of waves of training, and things are progressing nicely. I'm learning a lot, and my body is figuring things out. Initially, <laughs> there was a steep learning curve on these really long runs. And frankly, this training is different from anything I've done in a long time. I'm a different athlete than I was the last time I tried this 10 or so years ago, and it's a new journey. There is some yet undiscovered country in me. The 100 miles scares me, and I think that's a good thing. Across these first couple waves of training, I've ramped up 20, 25, 30, 35, and most recently 40 miles on a Saturday, and then followed up with 10 or 15 miles on Sunday, right after that, to simulate running on tired legs. The 20 miles, piece of cake. Just rolled off a road marathon cycle, so not much of a stretch. There was a minor adjustment to all trail running from all road running, but I welcomed it as a spring stretched its kind fingers across New England. This was the bucolic transition I was looking for. Ditched the hard step-up runs and speed work of the marathon for calm, soft, slow miles in the forest. A bit of sylvan meditation, right? Well, I think my expectations of long woodland meditation sessions may have been a bit Pollyanna. 
Anyhow, the 25-mile weekend, I opted to run a 21-mile mountain race instead. And the distance wasn't a problem, and the weather was cool, so I finished without a problem. On the other hand, it was a very difficult, challenging technical course with a lot of elevation gain and loss, and I ended up very sore, unreasonably sore the week following, especially my quads from the downhills, and that made me wonder about the yawning gap between 21 miles and 100 miles. That next weekend, I had my first real challenge, which was a 30-mile trail run. And I made the mistake of approaching it like any other long run and just running it. It was a hot and humid day. I crashed miserably and had to quit at 20 miles. This wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It necessitated a reconsideration of my strategies and tactics. I was forced to figure out a new way to approach these long runs, not just physically but mentally. I had to clear the decks of my marathon assumptions and start thinking on a different scale of time and distance, how to spread that available physical and mental energy over seven or eight or nine or 30 hours of running. I had to wind up and give my expectations a mental slap across the face. This was more than a larking long run in the woods. This was going to require some, dare I say it, work. And people will often give the advice in ultra running to run when you can and walk when you have to. I have not found that to be useful because I can run a marathon. But if I run that marathon at the front of a 100 miler, it leaves me with nothing left for 75 miles. That's not a smart way to approach the distance. And likewise, here's the uncomfortable truth about 100 miles. There's no strategy that is going to allow you to spread the effort over the distance in such a way that everything is sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. You're going to be uncomfortable at some point. At some point, it will suck. And it will not suck for a few minutes, like in a 10K. It will suck for hours on end. The kind of grinding discomfort that requires a new mental state. Your training goal is to limit the length and the depth of that suck and to acclimate to it. So after failing the humid 30-miler, I was looking at a humid 35-miler next. And I performed a reassessment and a mental reset, and I backed way off my speed and my effort. I purposely started working in a one-minute walk break every five minutes from the start. This allowed me to stretch out the energy level across the distance, give ground early, and survive the day. And every time that Garmin set a five or a zero, I was walking for a minute. That 35-mile run was still awful, especially in the humidity. But I was able to get it done. Physically, I slowed it way down. Mentally, I had to adjust my expectations, too. Those last 5 to 10 miles were a master class in running in suck. Mentally, I had to shift my perspective. When the distance gets high and the duration gets long, you have to stop thinking about finishing. You have to be present in the run. It doesn't matter how much you have left. You can't think that way. 
The misery of stumbling through those final miles gets compounded if you let your brain wander to when you will be finished. I made the point of not scheduling anything else for that Saturday. And my wife and I had conversations like, Hey, can you go to the bank for me on Saturday? Uh, No, I'm running Saturday. Can't you go after your run? No, you don't understand. I'm running Saturday. So once I made these physical and mental adjustments, I was able to finish. It still sucked, but as my ultra runner friends told me, it's always going to suck. Embrace the suck. Another thing that I had to adjust was my lubrication strategy. I don't care how tough your skin is, seven plus hours of running in the high humidity is going to chafe you raw. I lost skin in places I have never had chafing before. You have to stay on top of it because once you've got the raw skin, it can't really be fixed. You can put more lube on, but now you're just mixing lube with salt and sweat. Here's the learning point. You can keep running with raw bleeding patches of skin. It just sucks, and you keep moving. It becomes one of the long list of things that you push out of your mind and keep going. All these things subside into a dull background noise of misery, and you keep moving. I couldn't help thinking about ancient armies that force-marched hundreds of miles. Alexander's hoplites carrying bronze weapons and armor across the deserts of Persia with nothing but sandals, linen, and wool undergarments. Hannibal driving his guys across the Alps. Patton force-marching those grunts in leather and wool. Those guys are tough. I can't even keep my skin on my body with all my technical gear and fancy body lube. So moving into the last 40-mile training run, I was a bit pensive. That 35 had not been easy. Now I was laying on another hour or so of running. And that's what the math works out to for me with these super long runs. Just about five miles an hour. That would get you yanked out of some respectable marathons. That would get you swept off a 10K course. But here's the epiphany. The 40 was easier than the 35. My body has started to adapt. I rolled those mental and physical adjustments from the 35 into the 40, and it wasn't too bad. The first 20 miles were a positive joy. I felt strong and light. The last 5 or 10 miles were hard, and I was tired, but I wasn't struggling like I had in the earlier runs. And when I got back, I didn't have to fall on the floor and sleep for two hours like in the previous runs. The 15-miler the next day was a challenge. I mean, I didn't feel too bad. But I was obviously fatigued because I was dragging my toes, and I kept catching my toes. I fell like six times. And falling in the technical trails can be detrimental to your health. My hands are a bit bruised, and my knees are cut up, but nothing serious, luckily. Part of the difference was that the day wasn't as humid. The humidity really gets to me. It really feels like my body is starting to adapt. Adapt to the distance, adapt to the time, adapt to the heat, adapt to the fueling. And my legs aren't sore the day after. I don't get sore like I would from a marathon or a hard workout. It's more of a more of a fatigue or a tiredness than a soreness. 
And knock on wood, I have no real joint pain or tendonitis from all these miles. Nothing. Still a lot of chafing. My feet get pretty beat up. I haven't gotten any blisters yet, but I'm sure that's something I'll get to. And I haven't gotten sick during these runs, although I have had brief waves of light nausea in the heat. I've figured out some longer loops in my trails around my house. I've got a 10 plus mile loop and a 20 mile loop. And I figured out that I can go about 17 or 18 miles in the heat with one 24 ounce handheld and a full backpack. So that's that should get me between aid stations. I'm still figuring out what to take for nutrition. It's not really for fuel as much as to keep your blood sugar up. If your blood sugar crashes, it makes you feel miserable. This is something that I'm learning. And when you have those mental low points, it's typically because you need to eat something. And that's it. I'm sitting six weeks out from the race, and I feel like my body is coming around. I've done more miles in training than I have ever before. And I guess the learning is that your body figures it out. And now for today's featured interview. So uh, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. Okay. My name's Mike Antoniadis. I founded a company called the Movement and Running School. Everybody knows us as the Running School with the objective of doing running and rehab. So that was my objective is to take what elite athletes were doing and try and teach the ordinary Joe, if you like. But also I started noticing in the late 80s a lot of people were getting injured and didn't know how to get themselves back to running again and i was lucky enough to work with professional soccer and professional rugby oh very good i i see you're multilingual as too i am yes yeah you uh, speak fluent american (laughs) (laughs) yes well i spent some time in america as well so i know the lingo yeah Yeah. (laughs) so yes i used to be the CEO of a software company. I used to be in the IT industry, and this used to be my hobby. So I used to spend 30, 40 hours a week coaching people, helping people, being involved with soccer teams. And um, I woke up one day, I came back from San Francisco, actually, and I was so jet-lagged, I thought, I don't want to do this again. I want to set up the first speed and rehab center in the UK. It then took me, that was 94 It took me another four or five years before I was able to do it. And I haven't looked back since. It's been uh, tough, but it's been so enjoyable. And now we have teach uh, courses in both physical therapists and athletic trainers and and coaches, but also uh, recreational people. Uh, And we franchise the operation in different countries for those who are interested. So. so what's the core of your approach? What's the secret sauce that separates your approach from uh, everybody else's? Um, that's an interesting question. But the secret sauce is we don't look at it just from a physical point of view. So looking at and coming from a, a rehab background, I look at things as A, movement patterns. So look how people are moving and whether that movement pattern has been created through habit, through injury, or through a neurological issue. And we as humans, our movement patterns are mapped in our brain, and they can be changed. It takes time, it takes effort, and running technique is one of those 
particular movement patterns that can be changed and improved and got faster. It's an interesting thing because if you could have caught these folks when they were young and taught them how to the mechanics of running, you know, they probably wouldn't have ended up injured. Yeah. Right. So now you're in a position where you have to go and, and sort of help people unlearn mechanics and relearn the, the correct mechanics. Right. Absolutely. Yes. That's why the kids learn it very quickly. So we can change because their nervous system is so plastic. They can pick it up. Even the kids who have movement issues. We work with dyslexic kids and also kids who have mild autism. And it's amazing because of the plasticity of their nervous system, how quickly they will learn. If you have a good method and know how to break it down for them. Adults takes us a little bit longer. It takes us about three or four hours to begin to change the movement patterns. And then it takes another six to eight weeks before that movement pattern is an unconscious movement. So we don't have to think about it. And because we've been doing it for so long, we have... Uh, quite a few um, bad habits as well. Yeah, a couple of things there. What I see is people who were not runners in their youth, right, maybe not um, athletic in their youth, yeah. when they start running in later in life, they have um, terrible stride mechanics yeah. because they start out very slowly, obviously, right, because you're getting yeah. in the shape, so you're starting out as a, at a really slow pace. And yeah. by definition, it's sort of a heel striker overstriding uh, mechanic yeah and that kind of s- makes them get stuck at yeah, those absolutely. slower speeds because they don't realize that's not how you run right yeah absolutely it's you're 100 percent correct what happens is that type of person who hasn't been involved in sports and therefore they run as an extension of their walking and so they run mechanically and they know that they're heavy they know they're not doing it quite right but no one's shown them and that's why a lot of them overstride. A lot of them lead with the hip flexors and the hips and all yeah. automatically land heel toe. But then the stress travels upwards from the ground. And even those who tend to get fit still have a lot of injuries because of the mechanics. Right. And what happens is when you come from that and your mechanics aren't, aren't great, what you'll see is you'll get a lot of improvement in your times just by putting in more miles. Yep. So they get in this sort of natural progression of putting in more miles instead of stopping and saying, okay, how can I fix my mechanics yeah. so I don't get injured? It's sort of a drug to say, oh, I'm, I'm taking two minutes off my PR every race, so I'll just keep doing more miles. And eventually something breaks, right? It's a knee or a hip flexor or something yeah. breaks. Exactly, yes. And that normally happens when they start to increase the volume or increase the intensity. And because they, it makes us feel good, right? That's, that's the whole gist of it all, is that running is great therapy. And it's great for all walks of life. And when we start to do it, we want more of it. But if the technique isn't there and we're, we're overloading the kinetic chain, at some point it will break down. Right. And that's when they show up in your office. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they come to us for three reasons. One is... Even if they're injured, they say, I want to get faster. I want to run faster. The second one is, I want to stop getting all these injuries. And the third one, and this is the category we see for those who take up running later in life, who haven't had a sporting background, they say, I want to enjoy it. And right now it hurts too much. And that's because nine times out of 10, they don't know how to run. And it's yeah. not something that we teach in schools. It's not something we teach in sports clubs. 
except in specific uh, track and field uh, groups. Right, and if you um, look at video of elite runners and then look at a video of yourself, you'll yeah. see right away what the difference is. But it, like you said, because if you're later in life, it's wired into your nervous system. It's, it's, it's difficult to change that because you have to slow down. You have to go slower for a while to get faster. Exactly. And it's also difficult to coach yourself. It some is. people can, but some people can't. And I, I always say to people, what the, the biggest issue is you can't see what's going on behind you. And you think you have this great running. And then when you look at yourself running from behind, you're crossing over, you're shuffling. One leg's going one way, the other leg's going the other way. That starts to affect the biomechanics over a period of time. Yeah, I mean, I've run with people that have history of a certain injury, and you watch them from behind, and you say, of course you have that <laughs> You yeah. have that tendon, because your, yeah. your foot's landing sideways, right? Absolutely, yeah. But you, like you said, people don't know it themselves. But there, you can wire in better running form. Typically, what you go through that video process, right, with people and show them what they're doing wrong, then slow them down a little bit. And it's actually okay because you can put in like three or four months or six months of base building at a much slower pace and practice that good form. And at the end of that, you'll not only have the base to go faster, but you'll have the form to go faster without injury. You can start laying your your speed work and your your quality stuff on top of that. How how do you get people out of, you know, from one to another? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing is we look at the biomechanics. So look at how they're running right now and whether that running technique was formed through pain or injury. Because what happens with a lot of runners is they have a little bit of a niggle or pain, but they go, oh, that, that's fine. I'm going to go and run because it makes me feel good. And then we start to compensate and then they get the, the pain somewhere else, but they still keep running. And after about six weeks, they forget the original pain, but their movement patterns have changed. The first thing we do is look at how they're moving and look at how they move when they're tired as well. Um, And what tends to happen is also because of our our modern Western lifestyle is we are very front loaded. So we spend a lot of time sitting down in cars and trains in the office. And so then we get up to run. And we use the same muscle groups. We use the front muscles, the quads, the hip flexors. We lean forward. And then what tends to happen is the firing sequence of the big muscles at the back, the the glutes and hamstrings, does not fire in the right sequence. It's not that they're not working. They're working, but they're working in a different sequence. And to change that process requires anything between, we say, six to eight sessions to rewire that. And that's through um, teaching them correct mechanics for their body type but also through doing some activation exercises to get the nervous system to identify how all the muscle groups should be working and um, it's something I started doing about 26 27 years ago even before the the brilliant technology that exists today to be able to identify the biomechanics and view it so essentially you're getting people's form and mechanics right and then you're making sure that the muscles are firing in the right sequence through that form in a test tube or in a in a in the the lab the, environment so to speak so that it becomes repeatable and you got to do exactly. that enough time so that 
they make the connection between their brain and their and their muscle groups, right? Absolutely. That's how we t- we change the wiring, and we do it both inside and outside because we should be running outside. But the lab is a great tool for us to be able because people are not running away from you then you can identify where they're making errors or their different biomechanics and correct them um, there and then so we use accelerated learning so we use visual auditory kinesthetic techniques and cues to uh, make the changes which is why it can happen in about six to eight weeks Right, and then once you find it, it becomes another tool in your kit. You can call it when you need it. What I find is, like you said, when you get tired, and I'm talking seven hours into a run at yeah. that level, you notice that you're, you know, you're basically walking, yeah. and, and your form has gone to hell, and you have to call that up. You have to go, wait a second, get back, get back to your, uh, your good form, right? Yeah. And and the trigger for that is normally the arms. So that's another issue we have because we spend so much time with the arms in a fixed position that we don't have the coordination of the upper body and the lower body. Um, And once we get that, that tends to make us more elastic and then the form gets better automatically. So how do you have your folks um, carry their arms or what's the secret sauce with the arms? So the arms should be... If you look at elite athletes, they all vary, and particularly middle-distance, long-distance runners. So the arms should be about 90 degrees or or even a a shorter angle, and they should be going backwards and coming back forward. So if the elbow goes backwards, it propels the body forwards and upwards so that the the posture is better. Now, that arms are very, very individual. So the generic movement is the the elbow comes back, um, and uh, and then it comes forward to either chest level or um, shoulder level or when you see sprinters, sprinters bring it up to chin level and it's at full 90 degrees. But middle distance, long distance runners, you cannot maintain that technique. So it's just that motion. And what the arms do is they do three different things. They actually give us balance. So they balance the left side and the right side of the body because we are cross lateral animals. They give us rhythm. And the body needs rhythm with everything that we do, and particularly running. Um, and they give us speed. So there is the trigger. It's the arms move faster for the legs to move faster. Yep. Yeah, and I always used to uh, tell people if they wanted to run uphill faster, focus on your arms. Absolutely. Pump your arms. Yeah. Yep. And that's, ar- that will arm. get you out of the hill. Yes. Yep. Your arms will pull your legs. So that's interesting because I've always seen, like you said, the elites typically carry them loose and light around chest level. Yeah. Um, and those elbows straight back because what I also, this is another thing that people who have, who don't have an athletic background, you'll see is that instead of going straight back and forward, they tend to rotate. Yeah, right? that's so right. They, they come yeah. around their body with the arms like coming around a barrel and that'll give you hip problems eventually. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because you're, over, you're overcompensating for some weakness if you're doing that. Absolutely, yes. We tend to forget is that when we talk about us being cross-lateral, we move right arm, left leg, left arm, right leg. So that's the way the body moves. So if you're crossing over with your right arm across the midline of the body, the reaction will be opposite and diagonal. So the left leg will then, to correct itself, cross over to the right side. And then we tend to be crossing over a lot, and that's where the hips have to overwork or work differently. And then they start getting either back pain or hip pain or shin pain because the foot's landing in a different position. 
Right, and you've got lateral stress on the foot. Exactly, yes. So another thing I see, especially in my sort of old guy cadre, um, yeah. where folks have been racing for 20 years or more, is they will have survived some injury, yep. but it will cause uh, like a little hitch, right? All the old yep. guys have, and the old ladies as well, yep. have, have a little hitch in their stride where they're yep. just landing funny on one side or, or lifting a foot funny. Do you see that as well? Absolutely, yes. And the more experienced runner, um, the more they have that. Because what happens is even when the pain goes, the brain to protect us is making a little bit of a change. And then because we carry on running and don't correct it because we can't see it, it stays with us. And that's what we're saying is the movement, movement pattern and that particular running pattern has changed and then stays permanent. And you see this a lot. I work with a lot of veteran runners and runners who used to run a lot in the 80s. And they all have this distinct characteristics of they can keep going for days. Yeah, keep them going for days. And their aerobic capacity is amazing. But they all have this um, little individual movement patterns. Right. Yeah, I know. I recognize I have one. I had some bad plantar fasciitis about five years ago. Yeah. And I, I noticed that foot, I land on the outside of that foot more yeah. because of that. Right. Yeah. And I just notice it. Yeah. And that's because the brain makes minute changes to reduce the force where the pain is. And then right. we keep moving. The brain goes, OK, there's no pain now this way. So we'll just keep this as our new movement pattern. And then it stays permanent until we change it. Right. Until you get back in the lab. Yep. <laughs> yep. The interesting question is, what about now? Another difference we have today from back in the 80s is there's people who are running into their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, yep. their 80s, and they're run, doing it at a fairly high level, right? Yep. What does that do in terms of the physical maintenance required to keep those folks on the road? A couple of things. So. The older we get, the more aerobic capacity we get. So the more we're able, the lungs and the, and the heart, if we've been runners or even cyclists or uh, aerobic capacity athletes, if you like, for a long period of time, then that improves. What tends to happen is we, we then start to run in a certain way, so we're overloading certain joints. Um, and you will remember, Chris, in... in uh, Years ago, the medical profession used to say, oh, don't run a lot because you'll get osteoarthritis in your knees and your ankles. And that's been disproven time and time again. But what they lack is strength, okay? strength and mobility, not flexibility, because the joints and particularly the two main joints, which is the ankles and the hips, which are mobile joints, start to work in a certain way and then they start to become stable joints and that affects the whole kinetic chain and that's why you you see a lot of um, senior veteran runners both male and female who are tending to do a little bit of strength work which they didn't used to do they do yoga and they do pilates which because that gives them mobility uh, but they won't do any stretching because they're not used to doing stretching and they don't like doing stretching yeah well yoga has some stretching in it right yeah so. it does yeah 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 um it is more mobile mobility than it is flexibility, if you like. And that helps a lot. Yeah, it's interesting because once you get to a certain point where your mechanics are, like you said, you got a big engine and your mechanics are burned in, you don't need to stretch. You're not going to get injured right away. 
it's... No. And again, stretching is one of those little myths that you, you see on the internet that uh, physical therapists would like you to do, but everyone's different. So increasing the flexibility in the muscle through a stretch may not help you as much as increasing the mobility in the joint. And when you've been doing something for so long, if it works, you don't want to break it. Right, yeah. But you do see with the older athletes, they get that sort of shorter stride, that sort of crop stride. Yep. Yeah. And you can tell it's it's being constrained by the you know the length of the tendons and the ligament, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah it's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. And because running is stressful. Okay. So stress moves upwards. So it starts with the ankles, the knees, the hips, and finishes at about the lower back. And that's why we tend to change our stride as we get older. But the one thing you see with experienced runners who've been doing it for a long time, they have this elasticity. They always have this elasticity and this rhythm that they get into with their running, as opposed to mechanical runners or new runners um, who haven't had the experience or the years of running behind them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what makes it fun, right, is you can forget that you're running, essentially. Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, that's... yeah. So what do you see? What are the top you know, three things that you're seeing now uh, in your practice? In terms of, we're getting to see, funny you should mention plantar fasciitis. We're getting to see a lot of plantar fasciitis and a lot of calf and Achilles problems. And yeah. This particularly because people are going from heel toe to forefoot and particularly after the book Born to Run yep. uh, was published and a lot of people decided they wanted to change how they land. They went immediately from a seven millimeter shoe to a zero millimeter shoe. Exactly. And then yeah. went from being heel toe to land in forefoot. So right. then all, all the stress goes somewhere else. So it will go to the bottom of the foot or it will go to the calf of the Achilles. So that we saw a lot of then. And it, still today, because what people tend to do, and when you and I started running, there wasn't any internet. So we did it all through talking to coaches talking to other runners and seeing what other people do today they will go on the internet and go how do i improve my technique how do i improve my speed and the first thing you see is oh you need to be landing forefoot but if you've got you know size 13 feet and you're going from heel toe to forefoot and you've got a zero drop shoe the stress is going to go somewhere else yeah so um, we see that a lot and people when they tend to get some pain they think, oh, it must be the shoes. So I need a new pair of shoes. So I'll go and get the latest, newest, most expensive pair of shoes because that's going to help me with my running. Um, it might be the shoe, but probably not the way that you think. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um, the other thing we see, we see more and more lower back pain, which is interesting. And I think it's because a lot more people sitting down in an office for hours and then they want to get fit or they want to de-stress and that running is the easiest way of doing that and they're still overusing the same typical muscles which is the quads and the hip flexors um, and so they tend to lean forward but they lean forward from the midsection yeah yeah and i think there's a lot of that you talk about the internet there's a lot of that sort of crossfit type exercise yeah. that people jump right into and yeah. that that will give you a lower back problem if you don't ease into it because a lot of that is really fast jerky motions and if you don't know how to do them cleanly 
that's all gonna wreck your back. Absolutely, the, the high intensity training is good, but it's good if you do it with the right technique. So if you're tending to do Olympic lifting and you've never done it before, it makes you feel great. But if your technique is not good, it will cause you problems. Right, all that stuff goes right to the lower back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that's where we hinge from all the right. time. Yeah, yeah, especially if your hips are weak. Yep, yeah. that's, that's all going to happen. Yeah. All right, so what's your mission here, Mike? What are you trying to accomplish as I, I move us towards the exit here? Yeah, one of my overriding objectives at the beginning was to teach kids. So I wanted to teach kids how to run from uh, an early age. I think it's a life skill. And I think uh, we don't do enough of it, at least in Europe, we don't do enough of it in schools at um, primary level, so between you know, 5 and 11 years old. And we don't do enough of it in, in secondary school either. So we have special programs for kids, and particularly kids with one of the other things we've seen a lot of is a lot of kids diagnosed with dyspraxia, which is confusion of movement. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that in Europe, and I'm sure... It's the same uh, in the U.S. And it's mainly because these kids are linked through their umbilical cord to the Internet. Um, right. So they, sp they spend too much time sitting down, don't move enough outside. There's more distractions these days. And that tends to affect their movement and that tends to affect their concentration levels. Right. They're not outside all day like we were as kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, particularly in the big cities. Yeah. And there's loads of ways that we can get their mechanics and particularly their nervous system back on track um, so they get a, an enjoyable and, and uh, um, good running life. Great. So you got any uh, links you want to give to people, how they can find you? Our website is uh, all the W's runningschool.co.uk and um, where there's a lot of information on there about running technique, a lot of before and after videos. We tend to video people before and after and um, there's a lot of uh, advice on on how to get better running all right well thank you for talking with me this morning mike it's very it's, interesting it's been a pleasure and um, i hope we uh, get to talk again soon yeah absolutely enjoy your lunch thank you we'll do all right <laughs> take bye -bye. care bye sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know Stuff Review, Spring and Summer 2018. All right, my friends. I'm going to give you some feedback on a flurry of products that I have been using over the last couple of months. And the links to the websites for all these products are in this post and in the specific post on my website if you need to go look at any of these. Or you can Google them. Full disclosure, I was given for promotional purposes the Jaybird headphones, and the Tailwind Recovery. The rest of this stuff I bought with my own hard-earned shekels. First, let me tell you about my experience with the Jaybird headphones. Now, if you remember, I was given a set of Jaybird X3 wireless Bluetooth headphones this time last year to test. And I think I wrote a review late last summer. The X3 retails for about 100 bucks. Now, I have a checkered past with wireless headphones. I kill them. I think when they design sports headphones, they aren't thinking about what I do. 
I think it's like the difference between waterproof and water resistant. My ears and my workouts are a hostile and toxic environment. But bottom line, those original X3s lasted until April of 2018. That's almost a year. And that is through several severely hot, severely cold, and severely wet workout cycles. They synced well with both my iPhone and my Droid, and they last for about eight hours a charge. And they, for the most part, stayed in my ears, so two thumbs up on the X3s. When I wrote to tell them that I finally managed to kill their headphones, they not only sent me new X3s, but they also sent me the Jaybird Run. Now, the Jaybird Run is two individual buds with no wires between them, a really minimalist profile, and they have this cool little charging case you put them in, and they retail for about 150 bucks. So frankly, I like the X3s better for my purposes. The run buds are persnickety and they're sinking. They don't seem to remember my droid well, and that, that forces me to repair and to resync. And the battery only lasts for three hours. So for most people, okay. For me, not so much. Sometimes that left bud loses track of the right bud because they're, they have no wire between them. I mean, it's a decent product. It's a really nice form factor. But I really don't have time in my life to be fiddling with the technology before every workout. So next up, a couple of nutrition products. Tailwind Nutrition is a well-known company in the ultra-running and trail-running world, and they sent me a box of their recovery product. It's called Tailwind Nutrition Rebuild Recovery. I'm looking at it right here. It comes in two-ounce sacks of powder. Each one is 245 calories, and there's chocolate and vanilla. And I really wanted to like this product from what it's the description. It's gluten-free, it's vegan, it's got aminos and electrolytes and protein. I mean, based on the description, it seemed like a great product to mix with a bottle of water for after those super long runs that I've been suffering through. Super convenient. Just throw some powder in some water. But when I tried it, I found it to be super sweet, like sugary sweet, like make your teeth hurt sweet. And when I looked at the ingredients list, sure enough, the first two ingredients are dextrose and sucrose. And I don't need that much sugar in my life, especially after a long run. So I can't drink it standalone. It's too sweet. The only thing I can think of doing with it would be adding it to my smoothies as an adjunct. Next up is a company I'm more familiar with, Hammer Nutrition. Now, these guys grew out of the long-distance cycling world, and I have been using their Endurolite capsules for electrolyte replenishment for years. They keep the cramps off in the high miles. So much so that I was running out and I had to reorder from their site. And I guess they forgot I was already a customer because they sent me the new customer starter kit. And this is a pretty good deal. You get the stuff you ordered, in my case, a bottle of Enduralites, plus a couple gels, some Enduralite fizz tablets, a sack of heed, a sack of perpetuum, a super yummy vegan energy bar, and a sack of recoverite, and a little 
little container to keep your endurolates in, although I wouldn't recommend that because in the long run, it it's hard plastic and it reduces them to powder. Doesn't work. Yeah. It turned out to be a pretty good marketing tactic for them because I remembered how much I liked the hammer gels and bought a jug of hammer gel for my race. When I bought that jug of hammer gel, they also sent a flask and a water bottle for free, both of which I actually need. So good on hammer for giving away free stuff with every order. Now, I like the hammer gels because they're a good source of portable energy to keep your blood sugar up on long outings. And they're pretty tried and true and tested at this point. They also are not sucrose or dextrose-based, so you don't get that sharp sugar rush. You don't get that sweetness. It's more of a slow-release type sugar. So it's a good compromise, and it's something I'm comfortable with. Next up is the amusingly named Ultra Runner Recommended Cult Favorite Squirrel's Nut Butter. Oh yeah. I have been suffering from some awful chafing this training cycle. I asked my ultra friends, hey, what do you use? And Eric, he recommended Squirrel's Nut Butter. Now it's a bit pricey, and I'm not sure it does any better than the petroleum-based products, but I like it. I like it because it's got a sense of humor. I like it because it's all natural. It's coconut oils and beeswax. By the way, they have a version without beeswax now for you vegans. And this stuff smells great. I mean, if you got lost in the woods, you could cook with it or eat it. That's how good it smells. So I like this stuff. And next... With the time I'm spending in the woods, I'm giving up a large quantity of my precious bodily fluids to biting insects. And I have sort of a mental problem with the DEET-based sprays, the commercial insect repellents. I'm just not comfortable, and it might just be my problem, but I'm just not comfortable with asking my liver to metabolize all those chemicals every time I go running in the woods. So I asked the crowd of lunatics over at the Trail Animal Running Club for alternatives, and they recommended Three Sisters Organic Bugaway. The impression I get is that these are three actual sisters somewhere in a farmhouse actually cooking up individual bottles of this stuff. I mean, it comes wrapped like a personal wedding present, very boutique-y. And it's pricey for a four-ounce bottle of essential oils. It's got cedar, citronella, juniper berry, eucalyptus. I used it on my last run. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I couldn't tell how effective it was or even if it worked at all. But it smells great. And it made me happy. So I don't care if it works or not. It smells great. It makes me happy. And really, what are we living for if not happiness? (laughs) As summer progresses... And we move into deer fly season. I'll let you know if it uh, holds up at all. And lastly, I have been beating the crap out of a pair of Hoka Challenger 3 ATR running shoes. And these are a lot like a trail version of the Road Cliftons that I train in for my marathons that I like so much. Super comfy ride, piles of midsole cushion, soft, aggressive tread responsive enough when you need it, great shoes. And since I bought these, they came out with the new version, the ATR4. 
Uh, that's good news and bad news. Good news is you can get the ATR3s for 80 or 90 bucks now on the internet that they're discontinued. Bad news is that new versions typically mess up good shoes. We'll see. Uh, the two potential drawbacks I found to these shoes, and I've probably got close to 800 miles on them at this point. First, the toe box is kind of tight. I mean, I don't like buying a half size bigger. Uh, I'd rather let the toe box be a little tight. I've got narrow feet. I don't need really wide shoes. But, you know, as you start spending hours and hours and hours in the shoes, a little inconvenient rubbing up against the upper could turn into potential foot problems, right? Foot care issues. So they are a little tight for you folks with those big fat gorilla feet. The second minor drawback is that the upper is a bit weak. I'm tearing holes in these uppers. My big toes are poking through on both sides and there's a number of other rips. And it's really not a problem because you don't need uppers for anything anyhow. Eric, my buddy Eric, actually cuts his uppers right off. He takes them off before the race out of his hokas when he runs Leadville. He cuts the uppers off because they don't do anything. So up next, I'll review the gaiters that I've gotten to keep all that trail detritus out of my shoes. And maybe even the new pair of hokas that I bought. I bought a pair of speed goats. I'm going to try those out. So that's it. Stay tuned. We'll see if uh, anything else shows up in the backyard, and I'll keep you up to date. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, nice work. You have run crisply and with perfect form to the end of episode 4-388 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's been the end of an easy week for me. We'll see how how that ends. We'll see what Coach has in store for me next week. Uh, buddy, the ancient wonder dog, is doing well. It's been cooler and dry. Uh, what really bothers him is the humidity and the heat. So that's coming. We're going to get some of that this week. And so when you're mostly covered in black fur, it's hard to cool your core, you know? I know this from experience because coincidentally... I was reading this week that back hair is one of the DNA snippets that we inherited from the Neanderthals. So there you go. I'm short on time today, so I'm going to move you quickly to the exit with one quick story. So if you remember last year, they replaced the ignition switch, uh, the ignition on my old motorcycle. And when they did that, they saved the old key because... You need the old key to get into the gas tank and to get into the seat. So now I have one key, one set of keys to start the motorcycle and another key to open the gas tank and to get into the seat compartment. And this week when I got home from the office, I noticed that I had lost that old gas tank key. It rattled off somewhere on the ride home, which is a problem you see, I had about 110 miles on that tank of gas, and I typically hit the reserve tank around 140 or 150 miles. So, can't get the tank open. It's a problem. I called my Honda guys, and I asked for help. And they forwarded me to Jim's Lock and Key out in Lemonsta, which is how we say it here. It's really Leo Minster. And by the way, Minster is an Anglo-Saxon word that means church. See how it all comes together? New England, 
England, 388. See, it's all tied together. There's a theme. you got to stick with the theme. So it turns out these tank locks on old motorcycles are incredibly easy to pick, like child's play. And the guy popped it right open. He read the key code off the lock, made me a couple more keys before I ran out of gas. Wasted a day, but learned something new. I guess the thing I learn or relearn as I get older is not to freak out. I mean, when I first saw that the key was missing, I could have dropped into full-on panic mode and gotten all the sky is falling and woe is me, but that doesn't really get you any closer to a solution. Life is full of these little irritating events, and this one, you know, at first blush threatened to turn my old motorcycle into a paperweight, but it all worked out. Don't worry. It'll all work out. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. My time's coming any day. Don't worry about it now. Seems so long I felt this way, don't worry about it now. I got a good voice today because I got a little bit of a, I'm a little sick, so gives me that, that, uh, that low, low register. Low, low, low. Oh, airplane noises. Hold on a second. Airplane noises. Been so long I felt this way, don't worry about it none. No, 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 don't worry about it now. California, gleaming like a golden sun, smiling down on everyone, let it shine. All right, there we go.